welcome to Let's Talk About Self-Esteem. I'm your host, Marion Davis, president of Self-Esteem Boston, and today we're going to talk about self-responsibility. I'd like to introduce my co-host to you, Gail Morrison. She was founding program director and lead facilitator for Self-Esteem Boston for a decade. She created the Skills for Success curriculum for Self-Esteem Boston. She also is the author of our guidebook, The Elements of Self-Esteem. Currently, she continues to incorporate the concepts of self-esteem in her therapeutic work with individuals and groups. And I also got a reminder that she was also my co-host and self-esteem talk radio a million years ago for at least 10 years and we had a, we had a great time doing it. So Gail, okay. thank you once again for being here and um, I, I look forward to listening to both of you and um, to let people know that um, I think that the, one of the reasons why you were such an amazing facilitator when you came to work for Self-Esteem Boston was because of what you were learning working with somebody like Starhawk. So that, that and then what I'm going to do now is introduce Starhawk, who's our special guest. She's a writer, an activist, a perm, is it, is right, permaculture, is it permaculture? Yes, designer mm -hmm. and teacher, and leading voice for ecofeminism and earth-based spirit spirituality. She's the author of 13 books on earth-based spirituality and activism, including The Spiral Dance, The Earth Path, and The Empowerment Manual, A Guide for Collaborative Groups, which I have, on dynamics and social permaculture, and her novels, The Fifth Sacred Thing and City of Refuge. Today, with director, oh, together, I'm sorry, together with director Donna Reed Cooper, Starhawk, has worked on five major documentaries, including the Goddess Trilogy for the National Film Board of Canada and the Permaculture, The Growing Edge. Starhawk directs Earth Activist Training, which teaches the tools of regenerative design with a grounding in spirit, a focus on social permaculture, organizing and activism. And wow, that's a lot of stuff and it's probably not everything. Welcome, Starhawk to our stage. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. You're very welcome. You're very Starhawk. Great to see you, Gail. Yeah. So today we're, we're talking about self-responsibility. And it's one of the key components of having good self-esteem. And uh, that's why we're on this show about self-esteem. And, um, you know, the idea of self-responsibility or accountability is believing that, you know, our life is guided by our own decisions and efforts. And, um, you know, we can increase our self-esteem by uh, thinking independently and using the power of choice. Uh, and taking responsibility for our actions, sort of knowing in that idea that where we might have control and where we don't. Um, so I wondered what your thoughts are uh, around that in terms of uh, the work that you do in the world around, uh, you know, this idea of permaculture, social permaculture, um, climate awareness, and uh, 
everything that you do, basically. Well, first I should probably say for listeners who aren't familiar with permaculture that it's a whole system of ecological design. Uh, the term was coined by two Australians, Bill Mollison and David Holmgren back in the 70s, um, originally with the idea that it was permanent agriculture. They were looking at things like the rainforests of Tasmania and saying, these forests are incredible. They're so huge. They're so productive. They're so diverse. And yet nobody tends them. You know, nobody goes out here and sprays the trees or prunes them. They take care of themselves. So how do they do that? If we understood really how the forest does that, could we apply those same principles to growing our human food or meeting our human needs in other ways? And so they began trying to extract some of those ecological principles. Uh, they drew on indigenous knowledge. They drew on traditional farming and land management techniques. And they drew a lot on modern science and synthesized it together into a set of ethics and a set of principles that when you apply them, we can meet our human needs while regenerating the environment around us. And then over time, that grew into a global movement. And people began to say, well, this isn't just agriculture. This is really about creating permanent culture. I came into it from many years of working in earth-based spirituality and goddess religion. And when I encountered permaculture, I felt like that was the practical part. You know, that's the hands-on part of believing that the earth is sacred. And so I do a lot of work synthesizing the two of them, teaching people both the practical skills and also how to do the deep spiritual work the deep listening to the land that we need to do to come back into balance. Um, so now, of course, I've forgotten your original question. <laughs> it was about self-responsibility. I mean, the core directive of permaculture is about taking responsibility for ourselves, for our lives, for our environment. And I think ultimately, if we're talking about a kind of earth-based spirituality says the earth is sacred, that our relationship with other beings and ecosystems are sacred, not in the sense of some, you know, bow down to something outside of you, but in the sense that what's sacred is what you'll stand up for, what you'll put ahead of your own comfort or profit, uh, then that very much means taking responsibility both the environment around you, but also for your inner environment, for who you are. Uh, and a lot of our practice, our spiritual practice, our, we like to call it our magical practice, is about taking responsibility for our own emotional states. Uh, Dion Fortune, who was a magical practitioner uh, in the early 20th century, her definition of magic was that magic is the art of changing consciousness at will. 
And I've always loved that definition because I think it's kind of like a applied psychology about understanding our states of consciousness, becoming aware of them, becoming aware that as humans we're capable of many different kinds of consciousness and then taking the responsibility to know we can shift from one to another. We can learn to do that um, by applying our decision-making capacity, our choice, and our will. Do you have extreme esteem? How do you measure success? I choose to be conscious about not using drugs and alcohol. I feel my life with purpose by helping others. I'm here to live up to my own expectations. I live by values I respect. I am responsible for my own happiness. I love and accept myself exactly as I am. If you want to learn more on how to achieve extreme esteem and personal success, selfesteemboston.com. I am responsible for my own health and happiness. You know, how do we convince ourselves that this kind of changing of our way of thinking and being and being responsible is possible? You know, how, how do we not only know that it's possible, but not try not to get discouraged from people saying this is not possible. You are who you are. You were born that way. Done. Uh -huh. Well, I think it takes practice. Just like, um, you know, if you decide you wanted to run a marathon, um, it's probably not possible for you to walk outside and run the Boston Marathon tomorrow. But if you started and you practiced and you built up to it day by day, um, it might be possible over time. But it's going to take work and going to take practice. And it's kind of the same. It's like we're sort of taught that emotions should either be suppressed and denied and not felt or that they run us, they rule us, mm -hmm. their mercy. Uh, instead right. of being able to say emotions are things, they're like a form of energy. You're really enraged about something. Well, anger is a life force emotion. It's what arises when we feel a threat to some aspect of ourself. And if we can learn to acknowledge that, to not either fight it and suppress it and say, oh, I'm a bad person because I'm angry, or let it rule us and say, well, I'm angry, so therefore I am right. And I must, you know, fight to the death. It's simply being able to say, I'm angry. Okay, let that move through. Let me really acknowledge and experience that anger. And then say, well, where's that coming from? You know, what's the threat that I'm feeling? And to remember anger is a tremendously energizing emotion. You know, it's there biologically so that when a tiger attacks, you got all that adrenaline to run away or fight off the bear, whatever. But it's not a good place for making long-term decisions. Right. It's often not, not the best place from which to have an intimate conversation with someone. Um, 
So being able to acknowledge that and kind of let that energy through, you know, let it run through you, let it energize you, but then be able to take that step back to kind of ground, to come back to calm and center, and then say, okay, what do I actually want to do? What choice do I want to make? And so we have tools like grounding, um, things that I've taught, you know, to activists who were going into very dangerous situations um, that are really helpful, you know, in moments of those, you know, crises when you get flooded with adrenaline and flooded with primal emotion to actually have tools that you can use to bring yourself back to calm. And that really does key into the idea of self-responsibility. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm re I, I acknowledge my emotion, let's say anger, and then I, I know maybe how to, um, like you're saying, ground it or, mm -hmm. or take care of it without stuffing it down, then maybe I can be motivated to make change. Uh, that that came about because I saw an injustice and that it made me so angry or see what's happening uh, in the world that leads to people having power over other people. Mm -hmm. um, so at that point, you know, how do I, how do I claim to my resilience? How do I, um, you know, see the problem feel the emotion, and then move toward some kind of uh, path that would open, open the doors for me to be active and in a positive way, which would be equivalent to self-responsibility, mm -hmm. whether it's personal in my own personal life or for the, uh, the greater good. Well, one of the tools I use a lot is grounding, and it can be as simple as taking a deep breath and feeling your feet on the ground. And if you're like in a real emergency, sometimes if you can remember to do that, and again, the more you practice it when you're not in a crisis, the easier it'll be to remember it when you are. Uh, that can sometimes just bring you back to a state where you can make a conscious decision about what you want to do. And um, what happens when you get into a panic is you aren't thinking clearly. You aren't taking in all the information. So taking that moment to step back, <sighs> you know, I, uh, I tend to get into a panic around things like, I'm leaving, I'm late for something, I can't find my wallet. <laughs> can't find the car keys. And then you start madly tearing up everything in your house, in the room, and throwing things around. The more the you create a mess, the harder it is to find your car keys. But if you take that breath and <sighs> you might stop and you might think, okay, um, what was I wearing last night? What pockets might they be in? You know, oh, maybe they're here in my jacket. Yeah. 
and it actually makes the problem easier to solve. So grounding is a tool that I use every day. It's my basic spiritual practice. I do it almost every day, and I teach it. We begin every ritual with it. And again, it can be as simple as take a deep breath, feel your feet on the ground. It can be a longer meditation. You can imagine yourself like a tree with roots in the earth. You can take a breath and you can ah, just release everything down and let it go down into that fire at the heart of the earth. You know, And then draw energy up and imagine coming it up through your body and up through that trunk of the tree and out like branches surrounding you and protecting you. You can breathe in some energy from the sky, breathe it down. And, um, again, the, the real key is to do it regularly. It's like if you were learning ballet, you'd start every day with class and you'd start every class with really simple exercises so that your body learns them. And once your body has learned them, then it's much easier for it to become your default state in an emergency. Self-Esteem's Boston new online training centers are for everyone. Learn to use self-esteem skills in your work and in your own life. Learn self-esteem, goal setting, stress management, job readiness, wellness, and more. Online self-directed courses in English and in Spanish. This program will help you to grow and thrive. When you truly believe in yourself, the possibilities for your life are endless. To learn more, www.selfesteemboston.com. So, and, and this idea of, um, you know, being responsible and, and using tools, like you're suggesting, to be responsible uh, to myself, then we walk out into the world and, and how do we get to the um, place that we can say, well, self-responsibility doesn't necessarily mean I have to do everything on my own you know how you you teach people all the time you've got classes going how, how do you support uh, that concept when people feel overwhelmed because they feel alone in the kind of journey that they're on to uh, you know fulfill what what they think uh, is their destiny let's say well, part of self-responsibility is knowing what you're responsible for and what you're not responsible for. Um, yeah, we have a saying that part of what makes for a supportive group or environment is when power and responsibility are in balance. When you gain power in a group by taking on responsibility, and when you've taken on a responsibility, when the group gives you the power you need to fulfill it, and those things are in balance. If you have a responsibility and you don't have the power to actually fulfill it, uh, that can make you crazy. And a lot of people probably have been in work situations or things where you've had that. Uh, and it's tremendously destructive. 
Uh, I think oftentimes we feel that in relationship to the world, we feel responsible for so many things that are happening, but they're beyond the power we have individually to affect them. We have some power. You know, let's take politics, for example. You know, your vote alone isn't going to determine who gets elected or who has control of the Senate or the House. But at the same time, I hear people say like, oh, my vote, voting doesn't matter. You know, it's not empowering. It's not changing anything. It's not doing anything. Well, we've just seen some Senate and House races that were decided. I was, I was hearing one the other night that was like down to something like 18 people. You know? Your vote might really be the one that makes that decisive call. And you're not going to gain more power by throwing away the power that you have. So I think it's having that good sense, again, of where your limits are, where your power extends, and how that power can be augmented when you bring it together with other people's power. You know, if you want to do something, we, you know, I help to direct an organization that teaches permaculture and does many things online. And to a certain extent, I have a lot of power to do that. But to do that, it's not something I could ever do alone. You know, part of my power there is to find the friends and the allies and the co-teachers and someone who's good at social media and someone who's good at all the aspects of administering that I'm terrible at, like, you know, keeping track of the budget and all that, and bring them together and together we have a much greater power than I can have by myself. And if I think that I have to do it all myself, um, I'm either going to drive myself crazy or I'm going to do some of it very, very badly. You know, I can do a whole lot of different things. You know, I write, teach permaculture, I create curriculum, I have good people skills, um, there's a lot of things I enjoy doing that maybe are not my greatest skill set, but I find them satisfying. You know, over the last week, I've picked olives, I've built shelves, I've done a lot of things. There are other things that are not my skill set that where I have to go, I need help. You know, the power steering's gone out in my truck. Um, I look in the engine, I have no idea where to put the fluid. <laughs> I open up the manual, look at the picture, I still have no idea. That's where I can ask for help from somebody else. And getting that help from somebody else might keep me from putting the wrong thing in the wrong uh, little uh, hole of the, and ruining the engine. And that is part of my self-esteem, is to be able to say, this is where I don't know. This is where I need to ask somebody else. Um, and, you know, we see so many examples around us of people who are, you know, politicians especially saying like, well, I know better than the experts. You know? why, why listen to Dr. Fauci when, you know, this guy on the internet is like so much more 
entertaining. <laughs> Why listen to so-and-so? I know this. I'm perfect at that. And to me, that's actually an example of low self-esteem, of somebody who um, is so deeply insecure that they can't stand to admit that they might not know somebody something or that somebody else might know better than they do. Whereas someone who has high self-esteem, uh, I think about Rachel Maddow, if you ever watch her show, you know, she'll do something, she'll do some brilliant introduction of a whole issue and then she'll call in the expert. And the first thing she always says is, tell me if there's anything I got wrong. <laughs> is there anything uh -huh. I left out? Is there anything where, you know, I'm you know, incorrect. And to me, that's a great example of what someone who takes self-responsibility can do is to say, yeah, I may be wrong and that's okay. I don't have to be right about everything. My mm -hmm. worth as a person doesn't depend on my being absolutely right about everything. Um, part of my worth as a person is I can acknowledge somebody else may have more knowledge about something than I do. And that allows me to ask for help and get help. And that's actually a wonderful feeling. Right. Yes, yes it is. And I think, Gail, we're getting close to a few. Can I ask a quick question? Sure. So, in all of this, what gave you courage to just be yourself and believe in yourself? Um, you know, when I first started, when I was first writing, I wrote a book called The Spiral Dance, A Rebirth of the Ancient Religion of the Great Goddess. And I just remember writing it was like a torturous swing between, oh, my God, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. It's totally going to change the world. To, this is totally off the wall. It's just a piece of garbage. Everyone's going to hate it. People will kill me. A sort of constant manic, I call it writer's syndrome, you know, yes. bouncing back and forth. But I had a women's circle at the time. And we would call, I would call my friends up and just say, like, I just look, I just wrote this sentence. Someone's going to kill me. And we had this thing where we would always say to each other, you're a genius. <laughs> and um, that I think that's one of the ways we build that confidence is getting support for it and being able to run it by other people that can help us. It's one of the reasons I think therapy can be really helpful is finding someone in your life who can help to hold that belief in you even in those times when you yourself are a little bit shaky about it. Thanks to everyone for being on our show. And thanks to you, our audience. Remember, when someone wants to talk to you about the weather or politics or whatever, you can now say, let's talk about self-esteem. Oh, 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 oh,